0: Happy Monday and happy Thanksgiving week, Liberty lovers. And every single year at Thanksgiving, we do a special with our friends from Blast Off, Johnny Adams and Raylene Lightheart. And that is happening this week, but that's not today. That'll be airing this Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land, uh, brought to you by the one and only Brian McWilliams. But today we've got a little something different. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about our great sponsors at Health Excellence Plus, because I am personally very, very thankful that I have good health. Uh, I generally have no major health issues, but that is not the case for everybody, and we can't always plan on that. That is, of course, why people get health insurance. The problem is government regulations, Obamacare, all of these factors have made healthcare extremely expensive, extremely difficult to navigate. It's hard to even know what is going on out there with various healthcare plans, with the d- deductibles. It just never seems to add up. But you know what does add up? It always adds up. That's freedom. That's the free market. And our friends at Health Excellence Select have has set up an amazing free market alternative to government-regulated, crony capitalist healthcare. And I want you to learn more by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. You even have the phone number of the co-founder, Jeff Cantor there. He will give you a personal phone call and answer any questions that you may have. So head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. Check out Health Excellence Plus. I will also post the link over in today's show notes, which you can find at lionsofliberty.com slash 427.
1: Liberty Podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare.
0: My guest today is a history professor and the host of the Dangerous History Podcast. I'm very pleased and very thankful to welcome back Professor C.J. Kilmer. C.J., are you ready to roar?
1: I am ready to go. You
0: know, I really did mean to ask you something different. I I wanted to ask if you are ready to gobble, but I'm just so used to asking about the roar, you
1: know? Yeah, gobble, gobble, gobble. I can do that, (laughs) too.
0: You're ready to roar and gobble, you know. You're ready for all animal sounds that we need to make today, and that's what I'm excited about.
1: Whatever emus, whatever it takes. <laughs>
0: uh, well, you know, CJ, when I decided to uh, do a little deep dive into the history of Thanksgiving from a different perspective than the narrative that we've all been taught uh, from Thanksgiving or whenever, whenever whenever we started to learn about these mythologies, uh, you were certainly the first one came to mind. Who came to mind? You're always looking at things from different perspectives and finding little nuggets of information that really change a lot of the traditional narratives that we've been told. And uh, you know, when it comes to Thanksgiving, I think the basic narrative is there were these guys, the pilgrims, they fled oppression, they showed up in the New World here in America, what would become America at Plymouth Rock, they had an awesome meal with some local Native Americans uh, but as you might guess, there's probably a little more to this story, so uh, why don't we just start uh, uh, looking at the pilgrims themselves, uh, what can you tell us about the background of the pilgrims and uh, I guess a little bit of more of what they were all about that we don't typically hear from the history books
1: Okay, yeah, so they were hardcore um, Calvinists and they were a particular subgroup of puritans a lot of people kind of use pilgrim and puritan interchangeably they just sort of think of guys with big big hats with buckles on them and whatever um but the the pilgrims were a did dis- they at least think-
0: wear the big hats and buckles is that part at least
1: true? yes they did okay, that, that God, part of the narrative is correct okay yes. great
0: I, I can handle a few changes to my history but i really need that outfit to to stay consistent
1: yes the buckles are verified excellent, so excellent. they um the the pilgrims were a group that wanted to basically they were separatists they wanted to just leave the church of england entirely whereas the puritans at least initially wanted to try and reform the church of england from within to make it more calvinist less you know still catholic light um and all that sort of thing the anglican church i mean so um these these separatists they they left england they lived in holland for a bit over a decade but they didn't do very well in part because of the guild laws kept them out of some good jobs so they were kind of poor and they also were kind of annoyed that the dutch were sort of socially tolerant and liberal even though they were calvinist too huh, what um, jerks yeah so the the pilgrims they they wanted the idea that they wanted religious liberty isn't really an accurate statement they wanted religious they wanted a religious conform uh, a community of conformity they wanted basically religious liberty. If you were a pilgrim and they wanted to live in a community that was just other people who believe the exact same things as them. So
0: they wanted their own liberty to do things the way they wanted. And they wanted everyone within their own community to act according to that. It wasn't yeah. like they were, you know, liberators for religious freedom the world over.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. In fact, some modern commentators have said, you know, they have more in common with the way they wanted to run things, the pilgrims, and even the later Puritans who, who founded Massachusetts, um, that they had more in common with like Saudi Arabia, you know, they were like a (laughs) a Christian Protestant Saudi Arabia because they wanted to set up this theocracy and they were into like, you know, having people killed for witchcraft and sorcery and all these sorts of things. It's, it's pretty, some pretty, pretty creepy uh, theocracy sort of a thing. Um, So anyway, they, they get together and they get some English investors to sort of set up one of these like colonial corporation, sort of a deal is like a smaller version of the Virginia colony and they get some, some contracts and things to set up a a little settlement and they head over. And originally they're heading supposedly towards Virginia, which back then Virginia was defined as like enormous, like half of North America practically. Uh Um, But they didn't, they didn't actually go where they wanted to go. Um, They ended up making landfall basically at Cape Cod and it was like November and it's already starting to get cold and everything. And they're like, well, we can't go any further. So let's let's set up here. So they they landed at this place that had already been named Plymouth by by Captain John Smith, um, uh, Pocahontas's boyfriend, according to Disney, <laughs> um, when he was in the area a, long, a, a few years back.
0: And I'm guessing there's more to that one, too. But I don't know if we have time to dig into every.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> every yeah. Believe it or not, <laughs> the, the Disney version of history is not always the most. That accurate. is shocking. I know. I know. It's disturbing so the these pilgrims they had a little bit over 100 people and only about a third of them were actually pilgrims the rest were what the pilgrims would refer to as strangers meaning Mm non-pilgrims and some of them were were laborers and, and a fair number of the strangers were actually indentured servants and when they're getting ready to to land in plymouth the indentured servants some of them were saying like hey we should be free from our indentured contracts because we were supposed to be landing in somewhere in Virginia and now we're not even in the right place. So like (laughs) they're they're trying to get out
0: on a a technicality.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't blame them. Um, And one of the reasons actually that the pilgrims famously wrote up the Mayflower compact while they were still sitting on the boat, they sat on the boat for like weeks before they actually got off (laughs) Um, onto the land and and they famously they drew up this Mayflower Compact to form a government and basically the pilgrims did that because they were not in the right place and so they felt like they had to like make a government from scratch because their their original sort of colonial contract wasn't actually good and also they were worried about the, the strangers especially the indentured servants like trying to get their freedom and so a big part of the mayflower mayflower compact's purpose that's often overlooked is it was basically designed to make sure the the indentured servants stayed indentured servants and designed to make sure that the pilgrims kind of ran the show and, and controlled everything even though they weren't, weren't even the majority of the people um, so anyway they, they they go they go ashore and they start trying to set up they, they land on this place that used to be a bustling Indian community but the Indians that had lived there had been virtually all wiped out by European diseases years before. And so they saw it as divine providence. Like, look, there's already like remnants of a village and cleared fields. And look at this, you know, and not realizing it's because the plague came through a few years ago. Right. Um, So God has
0: cleared this place out for us. Yeah.
1: Yeah. God, God is uh, not a friend of the natives, apparently. Um, So they start trying to set up their community and they really have a bad go of it. They weren't properly prepared for this and they landed at the worst time of year. They actually landed in December in Massachusetts. And a lot of the pilgrims. Yeah.
0: Out indoor heating. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And
1: and, and the pilgrims, they were mostly like city people. They very few of them even knew anything about farming at all. Um, And so they had a hard time. Like half of them died over the first winter um, and it was really rough and one of the things that made the situation worse and eventually and we'll get to, they did get some help from the natives, at least to you know teach them how to get some food and stuff. But the first few years, even after they got some help from the natives on that front, they had a really rough time. And part of it was, you know, not just the environment and their lack of skills and whatever, it was that they practiced communism. They had agreed that for the first seven years of the colony, they would basically try to practice something like absolute Marxist communism, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need where everybody would work and whatever they produced would be put into one communal, you know, storehouse and then everyone would take from it when they needed. And of course the result was you completely destroyed the incentive of people to work really hard to take care of themselves and their family and all that. And everybody kind of half-assed it and everybody, you know, didn't contribute very much, but always wanted to take a lot. And that, that only made the situation worse as far as, as the starving goes.
0: And- so was it basically set up where, you know, different families, different whoever would, uh, I guess, you now farm grain or I don't know if you farm grain. I don't know how grain works, but, you know, they would they would produce whatever they produce. And instead of selling it to their fellow neighbors in some sort of market fashion, they would just, what, bring it to this central area. And then I guess the committee of, of whatever kind would decide who gets how much and who needs what?
1: Yeah, basically, the the pilgrim leaders, you know, from Governor Bradford on down, you know, they kind of made the decision. So, it, I mean, it was, in a way, it was like classic communism, where, where you've got, you know, like a central committee who's just deciding who gets what, and, you know, and, and it destroys the work ethic and all these sorts of things. And it got so bad that after two years of communism, they didn't get rid of it entirely, but the governor changed and added a rule so that each family could have a little piece of land that was just for them. And lo and behold, that little piece of land ended up producing like all the food and everybody suddenly wasn't starving. And to me, it reminds me a lot of anyone who's familiar with the old Soviet union. You know, they had these giant collective farms run by the state centrally planned. And as a result, the Soviet union was always short on food, even though it has lots of great agricultural land Um, and then sometime I forget maybe in the sixties or seventies, they allowed the people who worked on these giant state farms to also have like a little tiny, you know, kind of mini farm, almost like glorified garden that was just for them. Mm -hmm. And in no time flat, those, those little private little farms were producing enormous amounts of food. And I forget what the, I, I read up on this a long time ago, but basically this tiny little percentage of the agricultural land was producing some ridiculous percentage of the overall food in the Soviet Union. Right. And so, you know, similar kind of thing saved the, the pilgrims. And, and I actually dug up a quote from governor Bradford, which is really interesting because he's a hardcore collectivist in a lot of ways. And yet he admitted that like, Oh yeah, the, the whole experiment with communism, um, was a disaster, and we had to let people have a little bit of private property. And so, anyway, this this is Governor Bradford. This is 1600s, you know, old old English. But uh, if you'll in, indulge me, absolutely, um, it is it is kind of interesting to see what he actually says. So he says, "The governor." It's always a good sign when you're talking about yourself in the third person. <laughs> um, the governor, with the advice of the chiefest among them gave way that they should set corn every man for his own particular. And in that regard, trust to themselves and so assigned to every family, a parcel of land for that end, only for present use. This had very good success for it made all hands very industrious. So much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means, the governor or any other could use and saved a great deal of trouble, trouble and gave far better content. The women now went willingly to the field and took their little ones with them to set corn, which before would allege weakness and inability. Whom to have compelled would have been thought tyranny and oppression. The experience that was had in this common course and condition tried sundry years and that amongst godly and sober men. In other words, he's saying these were, you know, generally people with a strong work ethic and a strong community spirit and communism didn't even work among them. Uh, so he continues, may well evince the vanity of that conceit of Plato's that the taking away of property and bringing community into a commonwealth would make them happy and flourishing for the young men that were most able and fit for labor and service did repine that they should spend their time and strength to work for other men's wives and children without any recompense upon all being to have like and all to do alike. They thought one is good as another. And so did work diminish. The mutual respects that should have preserved amongst men, let none object this is men's corruption. All men have this corruption in them. And then um, there's I jotted down too a line from volume one of Conceived in Liberty by Murray Rothbard where he talks about this stuff. And after this long quote from, um, from Bradford saying that the communist experiment failed and the privatization, partial privatization was a success, Rothbard adds this quote, the antipathy of communism to the nature of man here receives eloquent testimony from a governor scarcely biased a priori in favor of individualism, end quote. So right there is, I know some, some libertarians know that little detail about the the Pilgrim story. It's been in a few different uh, books by like some, you know, free market economists, but it's certainly not well known amongst the general public, and it's not mentioned in most American history textbooks and he
0: really uh, lays out a, a, a layman's case uh, of this example of why communism doesn't work, why that collectivist yeah. approach does not work. Uh, I guess I would have to think, without really meaning to, I mean, he's just describing what he's seeing. I don't think he was trying to debunk, uh, you know, his entire collectivist philosophy. But uh, if you if you take it to its logical conclusion, that full communism didn't work a little bit of privatization showed incredible results. I mean, the logical conclusion would be, well, then we want more of that part and less of the collectivism part.
1: Yeah. And they eventually did. um, I, I think they kept some amount of communism still until that seven year, you know, term that they had agreed upon. And then at that point, they, they, they privatized things, you know, quite a bit more, but you know, the, the pilgrims and the Puritans too, for that matter, they were, you know, kind of knee jerk collectivists. They're, their version of Christianity was a very um, communal one, you know, where it's not just enough that you believe the right things and behave the right way. It's, you've got to be in a community where everyone else, you know, toes the line. and and so you get a fair amount of like people snitching on their neighbors and reporting their neighbors for sorcery and who knows what, you know, all
0: that classic stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So anyway, as we alluded to before, they also got saved from starvation by some natives and, the, the crazy thing here is the story of squanto which about I, th- I think it was three years ago now episode 126 of the dangerous history podcast i looked this up earlier today because i couldn't remember when it was um i did i did a detailed episode talking about the story of squanto because it's it's a wild story and we have contradictory sources so some of the details we're not quite sure on but
0: I'm guessing if there was a Disney movie, I'm not even sure if there is or not related to him. It would just be he was a really nice Indian who bef- befriended uh, you know these new people that showed up, and uh, you know he showed them how to speak the language, showed them how to trade, and yeah, you know, the rest is the rest is history. And, but and he probably, it's probably a little more complicated.
1: And he probably sang a whole bunch of songs too. Well, obviously, of That's, course. Yeah, how else
0: how yeah. else would you communicate to people you're just meeting for the first time that don't speak your language?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> well, so the the pilgrims, um, you know, they they encountered some some natives early on that that spoke english there was this one guy that they encountered first who spoke a teeny bit of english but then they found this guy squanto who spoke english fluently and it turned out that he had been abducted by uh english there were english raiders who came to to massachusetts sometimes trading and sometimes raiding and sometimes kind of blurring the two together um, they would trade with the Indians and sometimes they would also grab a few of them and kidnap them and ship them back uh, to Europe where they were sort of treated as like, like souvenir slaves in a way. Like they weren't put to hard labor usually, but you know, you would kind of have them around as a curiosity and like they could be your butler or something like this. <laughs> it was sort of a trend in some European countries at the time
0: because and, they were uh you know so so uh, unique I guess it was seen as what like sort of a, a badge of, of honor in a way like look I got an Indian all right I mean, yeah it's not just a normal slave it's not just some indentured servant exactly look at this guy
1: exactly exactly I mean it's like someone with like a really you know the, the attitude is like someone with a really weird exotic pet you know right. basically <laughs> like oh I've got a chinchilla you know what do you have um so
0: oh, I just have a dog oh, okay.
1: yeah I, I don't have any pets at the moment I used to have snakes but um but but anyway, the, the story on Squanto is at least once he was kidnapped and shipped over to Europe. And it's possible, according to some versions, it's, it may have actually happened to him a couple of times. He may have actually been kidnapped, then managed to get back to America somewhere and then got nabbed again. Um, but either way, he spent some significant amount of time um, in Europe and you know, learned English and kind of learned some of the ways of the white man and it just so happened that during the years he was gone is when all the diseases swept through and killed like 95% of the indians in his whole neighborhood
0: i guess he got nabbed at the right time
1: yeah yeah so if
0: you got to get kidnapped it should be right before right before your people get wiped out yeah i mean the
1: good news is he he made it through that that particular epidemic the bad news is when he got back he found out that like all of his all of his buddies and family and whatever were pretty much gone um so he 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 ended up being the main kind of like Go between um, between the the pilgrims and the the um, Indians in the area, which were I think the the Patuxet or something like that, which was a subgroup of the Wampanoag Confederation. That by the time the pilgrims got there, there were around a hundred of them, where there you know used to be a few thousand. So we're literally talking like ninety five percent.
0: Were those of point. the same tribe that had been wiped out? Previously, like by diseases or were these like different, you know, different groups?
1: No, they were, they were the remnant of, of the group that had been virtually wiped out by disease. Gotcha. So anyway, that, that's, that's how the, the, um, the pilgrims were able, able to establish, you know, communication. Um, with you, the, you would think at this point that those
0: remnants, that anyone that survived, you know, the diseases brought over by, you know, previous groups of Europeans, and even considering Squanto's, uh, you know, his his run-ins with Europeans, that they would steer, steer where, well well clear of these people when they came in. But, um, you know, I, I, what do you think were some of the reasons that these groups and Squanto himself were still, I guess, uh, able and uh, willing and able to uh, still interact and trade with and, and talk to these pilgrims who just showed up after all the, you know, the negative experiences uh, yeah, with previous encounters?
1: They, they definitely were were a bit, you know, cautious and standoffish, and and they had been before. They'd you know, even even the initial people trading and raiding through the area. The Indians had always kind of kept them at arm's length, but they ended up getting disease anyway, uh, just from from a little bit of contact. But what happened was the and, and the Pilgrims, of course, explained it as like, oh, God is is making these Indians be nice to us. But actually, what it was was that particular group of Indians in the area around Plymouth they were worried about the kind of rivaling, um, I think it was the Naringasset tribe that was a little bit further inland, which had been sort of traditional rivals and enemies of them before the white man showed up. And what had happened was the Indians near the coast got, got hit much worse by disease than the Indians further inland. And so the Indians by the coast, what was left of them, they were like looking for allies and help against the other Indians. And so that's what actually made the the group led led by the chief he's mentioned in all the thanksgiving stories massasoit uh-huh. um what what made him like open to trying to be friendly and basically making an alliance with the pilgrims was he saw them as potential allies against the other indians that he was worried about because they like i said they had not been hit as hard by disease and so there were still a fair number of them um so so you know you get this alliance of convenience and it's out of this that you get um you know, the the Indians teaching them some farming techniques and things like that. And then eventually you do get the first Thanksgiving. Um, I will say, just as a side note, what ends up happening with Squanto after that is kind of interesting. He never quite fits in with anybody. He's sort of like a man with one foot in each community and neither community fully trusts him. Um, the the pilgrims they certainly appreciated him and kind of liked him but they always you know saw him as an outsider to some extent and then the indians they they didn't trust him because he had spent so much time among the white folks and um also eventually it it seems that it's possible that squanto may have been uh, plotting against chief massasoit massasoit got wind of it and kind of at one point, he even wanted to kill Squanto, but the pilgrims actually protected him. and Holt, It's like House
0: of Cards, Thanksgiving edition. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, there's all this drama. It's, it's really crazy. But anyway, um, Squanto ended up dying of some unknown disease, I think, within about two years of the first Thanksgiving. So, you know, Squanto lived longer than most of his community did, but not, not by a whole hell of a lot.
0: So, so is there anything more to that first Thanksgiving itself then? Because it's obviously, like I said, uh, when we're taught in kindergarten, you know, we just think it's just a, a happy, happy gathering of, of two peoples coming together and, and being thankful for everything the earth has provided for them. But uh, it sounds like it might have been even more uh, maybe the coming together of a, of a military alliance or, you know, something, you know, slightly less cheery cheery.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely there there's some truth to the overall idea because it was it was celebrated um, in the fall, probably in October of 1621. So, so basically after at, at the time of their first harvest.
0: So you're telling me the Canadians have it right when they celebrate uh Thanksgiving. Yeah,
1: Christmas it Christmas. was <laughs> celebrated more often in October in America for a while um, until it kind of got by the civil war. It got sort of pegged in, De- in uh, uh, November, but they, it was in part sort of like, you know, thanks for the, the harvest. And obviously the pilgrims would have seen it as, you know, thanking God kind of a thing. Um, but yeah, as as you were saying, it also was in part like celebrating of an alliance, you know, celebrating an alliance of these two communities against the more numerous Indians further inland. And it's really interesting when you try and dig into the details of the actual event of the first Thanksgiving itself, we really don't have that much detailed information about it. We have a couple of relatively short, you know, paragraphs that people wrote about it who who were there, um, and there's not that much detail we're pretty sure it was in October, but don't know the exact day. Um, we have some information on the food that was served, but not a ton. And you know, as people might expect, actually most of the food that they were eating is not the stuff people eat. Um, you know, in, in modern day Thanksgiving. I mean, did
0: they have turkeys? At least Can they did even... have turkeys. Okay, okay. They did have
1: turkeys <laughs> and and uh, other other fowl. Um, what's what I think is kind of cool that they had that most people don't include in their Thanksgiving. They also had, and this makes perfect sense given where they were, they had venison and they had lobsters and they had lots of fish. They
0: can make a, a serious version of a, a turducken with, with the, those various animals.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, uh, I didn't have any venison at the time, but um, one Thanksgiving a number of years ago, I actually did a few lobster just to, you know, just to kind of throw a bone to historical accuracy I love it. I love it.
0: You could do the venison and then the turkey and that and then the lobster tails inside the turkey. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities. Here. Yeah, you
1: could do some cor- some sort of weird like um, uh, low country boil kind of a thing. Throw some some corn on the cob husks in there. Who knows?
0: So, so when, did the, when did Thanksgiving become like an actual American tradition out of this? Because obviously, I mean, this is still well, well before we even have a country. Was this something that was just celebrated locally after that? Or was it something that uh, kind of people kind of went back afterwards and pieced together and just sort of formed a holiday out of?
1: No, it it became a tradition. Um, maybe not always observed everywhere in America every year. Um, it it definitely was more common in the New England states for a long time. And you know, each kind of colony or then state would maybe celebrate it on, on a different day or whatever. They weren't all you know marching to the same drum on that. But you know, it it was a common thing that there would be in the in the autumn some sort of feast to celebrate the harvest and all that. Um, but then it, it started to get, and there there were like some of the earliest proclamations of President Washington and proclamations of the Congress and whatever, where like they would pick a particular day for a Thanksgiving feast. Some of those years in the early years of the Republic, but you know it was it was not real strictly defined. It wasn't a nationwide everyone's in agreement on it, whatever. Um, and that that started to come into being with the Civil War um and then it started to get more more standardized on that i forget if it was i forget if it was during the lincoln administration or if it was later when they specified you know that it would be uh always the third thursday in november i forget exactly when that became the day but you know it's obviously then over time it's entered into american mythology with all this you know, pageantry and imagery and mythology of national origins and, you know, America's rendezvous with destiny and um, exceptionalism and, you know, Providence favoring America and all these sorts of things. You know, it, it all kind of gets blended up and wrapped together with a mixture of some real stuff and then a mixture of a fair amount of BS.
0: Real events plus Disney version of events equals American holidays. Yeah,
1: it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, it's it's shoehorned in into serving that that founding myth function. And it's kind of interesting. um, Some modern commentators have pointed out that, you know, everybody kind of focuses on the Pilgrim story in terms of, like, the origins of colonial British North America. Uh, But Jamestown was founded, like, 13 years before. But, of course, Jamestown is, in many ways, an even darker and, and more messed up story in its early years. So... You know, they kind of like just ignore that as the founding first little myth there um, and skip to the pilgrims because the pilgrims, while it's got a pretty thick veneer of BS, it's at least it's at least more amenable to giving the propaganda treatment um, than is Jamestown. There's not much you can do with Jamestown that that looks, you know, both plausible and Nice. I mean, everyone can spend a much
0: cheerier tale out of this Thanksgiving Thanksgiving (laughs) feast, I'd say
1: everybody kind of knows that the Disney version of Pocahontas and whatever is like complete BS, you know, in a way that most people don't quite know that the Thanksgiving story is BS.
0: Hold your horses, kitty cats. I have to jump in here for one second and tell you about another great libertarian podcast. And this one is not your typical podcast. This one doesn't really focus so much on the ideas of liberty, but on music. And who doesn't love music in some form or another? I guess some people don't, but who really wants to know those people anyway? Let's be honest. Anyway, the show is aptly titled Sounds Like Liberty. Sounds Like Liberty is hosted by Liberty's favorite nerdy husband, Nick Picone, and his wife, Lizzie. They speak to guests every single week to find out who has the best music taste here in capistan and uh, the Lions of Liberty have actually been on the show at least a good number of us myself uh, Brian McWilliams and Howie Snowden have all been on Sounds Like Liberty we're still waiting for the John Oderman episode but uh, we're not actually sure if John listens to music because we already know he doesn't watch movies so here's what I want you to do I want you to go ahead and go on over to ancapmusic.com and check out Sounds Like Liberty or just search Sounds Like Liberty on your favorite podcatcher that's all I do I, I stick completely to the podcatchers but Sounds Like Liberty is an excellent show and really does a great job of merging culture, music, and liberty together. I highly recommend this program. If that wasn't enough, the show is co-hosted by an African-American female ANCAP. I mean, what, what more could you ask for? And by the way, Nick did tell me to say that in the ads. <laughs> Do check out Sounds Like Liberty. Go to ANCAPmusic.com right now to learn more. Well, there's another angle I want to look at here, and uh, this is something that I honestly didn't know uh, too much about. I have never heard of of it at all really uh, until you had mentioned it to me when we were talking about doing this show and uh, this is actually discussing another colony uh, not the the pilgrim colony that thanksgiving is based around but this is something called the marymount colony what can you tell us about this other colony uh maybe to start with like who founded it and what was the purpose of this colony and and, how were they different from the pilgrims
1: okay so the the marymount colony is led by this guy named thomas morton and you know they're kind of doing a similar thing although they're not as much of like rigid theocrats or anything as the pilgrims but you know they're looking to found a community and they're also looking to uh do some business and profit and you know they they were as, as were the pilgrims but the merry Matters were actually better at it they were they were trying to um produce things ultimately to sell not just to survive and to also trade with the indians because there were a lot of things the, the Indians had that the Europeans would value and vice versa. You know, the Europeans would want furs and hides and things to ship back to Europe. And then, of course, the Indians would want European tools and guns and goods and stuff and, and, and liquor, too, when it was available. And uh, and so, anyway, the Marymount group, they were a very different group. They were they were not pilgrims. They were not Puritans. They were people mostly from southern England who were what are known as high church Anglicans, which means they're, they're Church of England people that are like, rather catholic and even pagan and mm-hmm. so in many ways very much the opposite of pilgrims or puritans in their theology in their religious practices and in their social attitudes apparently by like 17th century standards the high church anglicans were pretty pretty socially um uh, tolerant and so Anyway, they set up this colony called Merrymount. It's not that far from Plymouth.
0: It already sounds more fun just on oh, the name alone. <laughs> absolutely.
1: It, it's basically like you're you're putting, I don't know, you're you're putting Las Vegas like right next to um right next to Mecca or something like this, you know. It's <laughs> it's quite a contrast. Right. So, the 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 present-day site if anyone's interested is the town of Quincy, Massachusetts. Um so it's really not that far from from Plymouth, but it is, you know, separated from it. And um, this is something, by the way, that, that uh, Murray Rothbard talks about this a bit in in volume one of Conceived in Liberty. And also Thaddeus Russell talks about it briefly in, I think, in the first chapter of Renegade History of the United States. So the Mounters they set up this community that's like super laid back and mellow. Uh, they're often like partying and whatever, but they're also still managing to, to work and do business and actually – at the time be more profitable than the and I, I'm presuming
0: they didn't set things up like the pilgrims with this attempt at communism.
1: No, no, To my knowledge. They, they never messed with anything like that. And I mean, it's just a much better sounding place. Um, there's, you know, much more just toleration for people doing whatever they, they often would socialize party and even uh, uh, interbreed with some of the Indians in their area. They like, got along super well with the Indians that they encountered. They they hung out like
0: you guys are going to share food. We're taking this to another level. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. They're partying (laughs) together. I mean, literally that's, that's what the sources say. And, and you know, the, the mounters. they're, they're getting Indian girlfriends and whatever. It's like, and and it shows that, that, you know, white folks and Indians could actually get along. Pretty decently when, when a good faith uh, effort was made.
0: amazing so, things happen when you uh, choose to party with people instead of uh, choose to slaughter them.
1: yeah yeah party and <laughs> then do business and like it was working the, the merrymounters were were making more profit than the pilgrims were and they um, they also another thing Thomas Morton uh, freed the servants in his group. He gave them their freedom, the indentured servants. He gave them their freedom and actually like let them in on the business, on, on, on doing business with the Indians and all that. Hmm. And so not only were more people wanting to move there than wanting to move to to Plymouth, and the and the Plymouth people, they they only wanted, you know, people like them for the most part, other than a few indentured servants, to move there. Right. But then also people who were indentured servants in Plymouth got wind of, oh, just, you know, however far away it was, a day's walk or whatever there's this other community of Englishmen who are like having fun and partying with the Indians and uh, Oh, and they might even give you your freedom and, and let you in on the business. If you, if you make it there, you know, so not surprisingly, the, the Marymount colony started to grow a lot faster than the Plymouth colony of the pilgrims. And basically you had this guy who by this point had almost become sort of a quasi military dictator, amongst the pilgrims, this guy, Captain Miles Standish and the Plymouth Colony, they had their governor, but Miles Standish by the mid 1620s, he was sort of taking the initiative to really like make things more authoritarian, even than they already were in Plymouth. And he immediately uh, hated the Marymount Colony when it showed up. And once it started to to get more profitable and attract more people than the Plymouth Colony, uh, Miles Standish decided this thing's got to go. So He he marches up there. I think I think Marymount began in 1625, if I remember right. And I think it's only three years later that Miles Sanders is like, all right, we're shutting these people down
0: just uh, out of of pure jealousy, I guess. huh?
1: Yeah. And out of like they couldn't live with the fact that someone who believed the opposite of them on almost everything Mm -hmm. was like just up the road
0: and way living in such a way <laughs>
1: and they're succeeding, which like really kind of rubs the pilgrims nose in it and everything, right? Uh. That God's God's not smiting them. So Miles Standish decides he's going to be the hand of God, I guess. So Mark is up there with an army of pilgrims and they basically attack the place. And um, they tell Thomas Morton that if he'll surrender, that they'll, they'll kind of give him and his people safe conduct. And then they surrender. And then the pilgrims end up attacking anyway. And they grab, um, they, they grab, Thomas Morton, and they imprison him. They almost kill him, and they drag him down to uh, Plymouth, and they try him in one of their courts, which, you know, legally speaking, shouldn't have had any right to try a guy from from a neighboring colony. Um, and and they, uh, Miles Standish was pushing for the death penalty. They ultimately decided to just imprison him for a while, then ship what ship him back the- to England.
0: What were the charges? Like what what are they what are they accusing this guy of just being in a you know, heretic in general or what? Yeah,
1: I, I I'm I haven't been able to dig up like what the exact I don't know if we have records of the court proceedings for this. I I've never come across them. But I'm assuming it's, you know, basically like ungodly conduct and whatever. One of the things that the Marymount people had done, they had set up a maypole in the middle of the community and they would often like party around the maypole, which is something that you know, Europeans who were still kind of more pagan-ish in their practices would often do. And, you know, to have...
0: What What is the Maypole exactly?
1: Oh, it's just like a, a pole that you would set up in the middle of town, sort of like in the town square. Um, and and you would decorate it. And it would also sometimes... I think it would sometimes also be used almost as like an early version of social media. Like people would post notes on it for people and stuff like that. Like notices. Those their things. status update. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, but but to the pilgrims all of this is like paganism slash satanism mm-hmm. and the fact that they're dancing around this pagan you know symbol sometimes with indians who they might be drinking and populating with too uh to the pilgrims like this is all like it's right up there with witchcraft and sorcery basically right <laughs> so anyway they they shut the whole place down they imprisoned thomas morton almost killed him miles standish apparently was considering possibly just murdering him while he was in custody when he couldn't get the death penalty but he, he decided not to so they shipped him back to uh back to england and, and and basically destroyed the colony and uh there's a there's a short story by nathaniel hawthorne who is you know most famous for scarlet letter and stuff like that uh, written in the 19th century called the maypole of merrymount and uh, once you get past the kind of weird language to our our ears, our eyes, um, it's a very interesting short story because he very kind of, and I think he's mostly just sort of, you know, guessing and making up the details of what happens. I don't know if we really know. But in the story, he basically has it so that when the grumpy pilgrims show up to shut down Marymount, there's actually a wedding going on of like, Two beautiful young people, and it's this beautiful kind of paganish sort of wedding ceremony and whatever. And then in come these grumpy, dour pilgrims all in black, pointing blunderbuss at everybody, shutting it down, you know, and and basically telling them like the party's over. Mm -hmm. Um, and it it's it's interesting to think about, and this is sort of how Thaddeus Russell frames it, and and I think it's an interesting way to think about it, but like Mm -hmm. that there were two alternative foundings of America right next door to each other here that there's this one that's like very free-spirited and, and tolerant and, you know, getting along with the Indians even and all this sort of thing. And then next door is the grumpy jerk to, you know, want to control everything and control everybody and all this sort of thing. And, you know, unfortunately it's the, it's the grumpy jerks that, that get the upper hand and, and shut the other one down and not that the not that the libertine spirit ever goes away in America, but that it kind of gets 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 pushed out of the driver's seat that it otherwise might have ended up in, and know, it's one of those interesting alternate history things to wonder about, like maybe if the maybe if the merry matters had taken a few breaks from partying to like you know put together a better local defense force or whatever, right. um, maybe they would have been able to fight the pilgrims off. I don't know, but you know, and
0: maybe Thanksgiving would be, you know, a, a year, a time of year when we all dance around the maypole and you yeah, know, we do we do more merry type things?
1: Dance around the <laughs> maypole and 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 thank uh, thank the pagan gods that uh, we fought off those damn pilgrims so that we could still be free. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, yeah, it, it really is like literally. Sometimes you have to fight for your right to party.
0: <laughs> well, that's as good a, a way as any to wrap things up uh, talking about our little libertarian lessons we can get from Thanksgiving. One, thing, one more thing I did want to talk about. What was the ultimate fate of, of Plymouth Rock, of that pilgrim colony? Um, obviously, they, they dabbled in communism. Things got better when they you know uh, accepted a little private property. They took out the Marymount colony because they're having too much fun. Whatever became really ultimately of Plymouth Rock.
1: Well, it it never really flourished. It never got very large in population, and you know they eventually like made a living and were self sufficient. But they never they never really prospered very much. Um, just ten years after the founding of Plymouth, is when the Puritans, the non-Pilgrim Puritans, the non-separatist Puritans, when they started showing up in Massachusetts in much larger numbers, and for a while, Massachusetts and Plymouth were legally two separate colonies. Now Plymouth was tiny. Um, basically, it's like One town in the area right around it. And Massachusetts was much larger, but for a bunch of uh, decades, they were technically two separate colonies. And then um, somewhere, I think around like 1680 or 90 or something like that um, is when, because the Plymouth colony by that point was still just this tiny little group of people. And they basically just sort of got absorbed. Um, I, I think basically more or less voluntarily, they got kind of absorbed into Massachusetts So, you know, the people never went away, but but the Plymouth colony stopped being a separate entity.
0: All right, CJ. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, doing this little deep dive into the, the dangerous history of Thanksgiving. We'll talk, I'll call this a dangerous look at Thanksgiving. How about that? And uh, before I let you go, CJ, well, why don't you just uh, take a minute to give a little wrap up of how everybody can find uh, your podcast, of course, Dangerous History. And uh, feel free to plug away on any anything else you got going on, any big projects you got going on, any uh, big series you're currently in the middle of, feel free to just give everybody the full roundup of what you got happening at Dangerous History.
1: Well thanks I appreciate that and thanks of course for having me on it's been fun. Um yeah the the podcast is Dangerous History Podcast. It's go to dangeroushistorypodcast.com you'll get to my website and you know it's available in all the usual podcast venues just put in Dangerous History Podcast you'll find it and it's you know history from a a libertarian anti-establishment skeptical kind of point of view always trying to look for the, the perspective on things that people have not been exposed to before or likely have not anyway. And uh, let's see. yeah, got a few different things in the works. I'm in the middle of a many part series going super deep into the life and career of Woodrow Wilson. Um, let's see. I'm hard at work on the third episode in that series right now. I'm hoping to get that out before the end of the month. We'll see. Um, other than that, I've also got my, um, I'm working on my Dangerous History Lyceum course, Rise of the American Empire. I've got the first lecture on that already available, working on the second one, and that's for folks who support me via Patreon or Subscribestar at 15 bucks a month or more. In addition to all the other bonus material that the lower levels of support get, those who go for the $15 or higher level, they get access to this course that I'm making rise of the american empire from independence to the present day looking at american history in the way that you would look at like the rise of the roman empire the rise of the british empire through an imperial lens of analysis so anyone who's interested can check that out of course you know i've got part of the first lecture available on the public feed if you want a little sample Um, but if you want more than that you've got to you've got to throw down for the paywall
0: you know, you got to make them pay at some point or else, you know, we're just going to be doing this uh, forever and living out of, you know, living out of uh, teepees or, or something like that, you know? So. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm, I'm generally not a believer in the labor theory of value, but I make an exception for myself. <laughs> exactly.
0: We often make make exceptions somewhere, especially when it means we have uh, taken a little revenue for an exchange for our hard work. Well, uh, CJ, we really do appreciate all of your hard work and all of your knowledge on these issues. And uh, we look forward to doing some more deep dives on various topics in the future. Keep up the great work, CJ. Keep on roaring and uh, keep on gobbling, too, while we're at it.
1: All right. Thanks very much. And uh, anytime you want me back on, just let me know.
0: All right, Kitty cats. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Professor C.J. Kilmer. If you're at all into history, you have got to check out the Dangerous History Podcast. It is bar none, uh, I don't know if it's the best, Dan Carlin's awesome too, but it's definitely one of the best uh, history podcasts out there. It's my personal favorite because I don't always have 17 hours to sit through a Dan Carlin show, <laughs> to sit through Hardcore History. That is, of course, a great great program as well. Uh, yeah, but this I was really glad to do this little deep dive on Thanksgiving, uh, debunk some of the myths, and learn some libertarian lessons perhaps from the past and uh but now we're going to look to the future and the future the future is uh full of merriment you might say uh i think we're actually going to take after the residents of marymount this coming wednesday when we have our annual thanksgiving special with our friends johnny adams and raylene lightheart from blast off that will be airing this wednesday on electric liberty land of course brian hosts that show every single wednesday where he brings you his weekly shot of comedy culture, and liberty, and of course, so much debauchery. And that's really what you're going to be hearing this coming Wednesday. And then as always, John will be wrapping things up on Felony Friday. This one's a Felony Black Friday, I guess. So I have no idea if John has any specials he's going to be offering you or anything like that. I don't even know. I don't, we don't talk about this kind of stuff. You know, he does his own thing, but I can certainly tell you that if you want Black Friday, if you want Cyber Monday deals, I can tell you what link to go through. And that is the link that we have at lionsofliberty.com Amazon. If you do any of your holiday shopping through that link, your Black Friday deals, your Cyber Monday deals, just your toilet paper, I don't care what you're buying, anything you buy through that link will give us a little kickback and it costs you no extra money at all. So that's a really easy way to support this show uh, that we probably don't mention enough, but it is the holiday season. So lionsofliberty.com slash Amazon for all your your holiday gifts, your Black Friday deals, your Cyber Monday deals, please do your shopping through there. Help out your favorite libertarian podcast. And if that's just not enough for you, you can, of course, support us directly on Patreon over at patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. We got tears, tears, tears. We got tears for everyone starting as low as $2 a month, which lets you access our live streams. Of course, they go higher and higher from there. Our new Nitty level at $50 a month will allow you to choose certain shows that we do. You can choose a conspiracy corner topic, which will be a public show that will be released on. On the public feed. You can also choose to have us do a movie review. Basically, you get con- to control our content directly at that level. And of course, at $100 a month, you even get a weekly advertisement on one of our three shows. That's one of those spots. Is currently taken up by the aforementioned Nick Picone and his great show Sounds Like Liberty. Find out all about it over at patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. If you want to toss us a one-time donation, you can do that at paypal.me slash lionsofliberty. And if you want to donate cryptocurrency, you can find those links over at lionsofliberty.com slash Donate. But really, at the end of the day, I am most thankful for all of our listeners out there, for every single one of you that clicks that download button, that gives us a listen, that tells a friend about the show, that clicks a like button, that hits a retweet. Cause at the end of the day, all of our listeners, all of our people that are getting involved in this conversation about the ideas of liberty, you're the reason we exist. Even if we had all our Patreon supporters, even if we had all our advertising money, even if we had all the benefits of taking in money, it wouldn't really mean that much if we didn't have people listening if we didn't have way more people out there listening so of course not everybody is going to be in a position to support the show financially uh obviously we all have different things we need to spend money on you might prioritize other libertarian podcasts over us and that's okay but what we do ask you to do is to tell people about this program that's free shoot an email to somebody hey you're interested in the ideas of liberty, there's an awesome show called Lions of Liberty. Check it out. They've got this cool format. These guys are awesome. Blah, 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 blah. You know how it works. Talk us up if you like. If you're really thankful for this show, if you're as thankful for us as we are for you, that's all we ask of you. We ask you to click that share button. Click that like button. Leave us a five-star rating and a great review on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever it is that you listen to this program. Because if you do that, we'll keep doing this and we're going to keep spreading these ideas of liberty. That's a fact, my friends. That is a undeniable fact. Almost as undeniable as the fact that we are going to have a ridiculous, ridiculous time this coming Wednesday. If uh, our history is any sort of indicator whatsoever, uh, I will not be feeling very good the next day. But I do encourage you to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss anything and so you don't miss this Thanksgiving special this coming Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land. Until next time, kids. Live long and live free.